This evening I want to talk particularly about uh, taking the practice home with us. And especially, a lot of the comments will be directed to Vipassana practitioners about integrating uh, the two practices as you go home and as you continue with your meditation over many years. I think it's interesting as the uh, uh, people trickle in from the lobby for the talk this evening that uh, noticing that the effect of ringing the bell did not have the same impact tonight <laughs> as it did a couple of nights ago. And uh, it may bring home to us that the prospect of stabilizing in the view may be a little more formidable task than we had thought before we had a couple of hours of conversation. So welcome. This is a little taste of the world of reality that you'll be entering tomorrow. Uh, and a little bit of the challenge that's involved in really integrating this practice into every moment of life. I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about the way my own understanding has changed since I connected with these teachings about 10 years ago. And to put it in context, for those of you who know the Vipassana scene, uh, the dominant paradigm, really the only paradigm, that I had to go on at that time was the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition out of Burma, and a little bit my experience as a monk with the Thai forest tradition. But the dominant paradigm in this scene was out of Burma, this style of mental noting where one would apply a soft label to the predominant experience of every moment and connect with that object firmly with mindfulness. And the path was seen as one of gradually weakening the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion through this applied mindfulness and reaching successive stages of the realization of the unconditioned. And in that, the, some of the elements of bondage would be permanently uprooted. That was the background I was coming from and that most of our scene was in uh, 10 years ago when we first encountered uh, these teachings. And I realized that over that time, as my understanding has shifted, that's also been true for a lot of the other teachers in our scene, and as well as the IMS community on the East Coast, our sister center, and that as that has happened, these teachings have sort of been sifting down already in the way we've been presenting Vipassana and uh, Dharma practice in general. So some, to some extent, I think we take for granted today some of the central concepts that we've actually, uh, that have actually infilt been infiltrating Vipassana from the Dzogchen view. And um, just to mention one, I was having a conversation with someone this afternoon who said, I said, uh, well, one of the things I thought was pretty unusual was the instruction to turn the awareness back on itself. And the comment was, well, he'd heard that from a Vipassana teacher about 10 years ago. <laughs> but my suspicion is that that instruction came either from the Dzogchen teachings or from the Advaita teachings 10 years ago, because it wasn't in such common parlance back then. But it is now. You know, we often say things like that on Vipassana retreats now. Maybe not in the hall, but to individual, <laughs> to individual yogis. So I think that the integration is, is starting to happen, and I think that it has a long way to go. And we will mature as a sangha and as, as teachers too, I hope.
One of the things that I've appreciated is that the exposure to these teachings has not weakened my faith in what we've been doing. And Rinpoche said something very similar this afternoon. He said, you don't have to change the practice that you've been doing, whether you're coming from Vipassana or Zen or any other Mahayana or aspect of Vajrayana practice. Those practices are all still valid. And I had some little concern that I would start to think that my practice was an inferior practice or that it wasn't quite uh, up to par. And rather than that, it's actually strengthened my conviction that what we have been presenting uh, through the Vipassana teachings over these years has been right on has been right on track. But what it has done is brought out some aspects that I've started to appreciate more than I had before. I'll talk about those in a bit. But basically, I found that for myself, the two systems of the Vipassana practice and understanding and the Dzogchen practice and understanding are highly complementary. Highly complementary in that each tends to fill in an area that the other doesn't. And I feel that when we put them both together, we get a very a beautiful and complete picture of a Dharma path. It's not the only Dharma path. Obviously, Vajrayana has its own Dharma path that doesn't particularly rely on our style of Vipassana practice. So it's not necessary. But for me, the Dzogchen view and the Dzogchen practice completed an aspect of Vipassana that uh, had been uh, lacking from my understanding. And I'm very, very grateful for that, and I intend to keep uh, respecting it, honoring it, and practicing it for the rest of my life. Uh, Very simply put, I appreciate Vipassana because it's very clear on how we get caught. It provides a really detailed view of the way that the mind can get uh, trapped by clinging in all the different forms. And it gives us really excellent tools for looking into those uh, fixations closely enough that we really understand them. And I think it's through the, you know, through the looking at the, uh, closely to the body, the pain that develops in the body and the reactions of aversion that come out of that pain, that we learn how to release the quality of aversion to unpleasant experience, that's a huge step. That's a huge movement forward. Most of the world, if, if experiencing pain, is stuck in the aversive reaction to it. And through exploring the body so thoroughly, we learn how to, you might say, liberate that reaction of aversion to unpleasant bodily sensations. That's kind of Vipassana 101. And then moving uh, more into the side of the mind, we become so familiar with all the different mind states that can come and obscure our innate clarity. We become really, really familiar with the movements of wanting, of grief, and sadness, of fear, of self-judgment, All the different manifestations of the neurosis of our day come up and are seen so clearly. It's what we spend a lot of time talking about on Vipassana retreats. So I don't know if you remember that story of the Burmese hunter who was told that there was a rare bird that hung out in a part of the forest. And he was sent out to find the bird. 
And through looking for the bird, he explored the whole forest and got to know it in intimate detail. So I think one of the great strengths of our practice is that we really come to know the mind and its uh, reactive possibilities so intimately that none of them uh, tricks us anymore. Because we've seen all the different flowers that can come from that garden, basically the garden of craving, but it has many different blooms. And we come to know each one of them through that careful attention to the mind moment after moment. In addition, in order to do that, we have to have a base of stability. And so I also really appreciate the base of, of shamatha that most uh, se- seasoned Vipassana practitioners have and then becomes a great asset moving into the Dzogchen practice. So I think the understanding of the body, the understanding of mental states, and knowing how not to get caught in any of those, and the basic stability of attention is something that our community has done, has done fairly well. I think what Dzogchen provides, on the other hand, that's a complement, is a really uh, precise, elegant, and beautiful description of the intrinsic freedom that is right here and that we can tap into in any moment. And that's something that through you know, the first 20 years of my Vipassana practice had not been so clear to me. I still thought that I had to keep looking at these objects and connecting with these objects and slowly building the mindfulness up little by little and someday I might have a, you know, enlightenment kind of thing happen. Then I'd know freedom. And these teachings for me really opened the door to discovering where freedom lies here and now. And in being able to feel it, being able to have it as part of my daily experience. And for me, that brought the goal of practice into the moment. It brought the goal here and now. And in doing that, my Dharma practice took on a much greater flavor of contentment. I didn't feel that I had to keep striving for something in the future, but I could find the fulfillment here and now. So my practice started to become full of this, of the flavor of resting in a contented state. I like that poem of Sokni Rinpoche the the first, which we only read, uh, chanted once, I think, where he says, there's nothing else to search for. Rest in your natural place. This is a beautiful and liberating discovery along the path. And when you find that, then the path and the goal really come together. You realize that resting in your natural place is also what furthers the unfolding. And so that's one of the dualities that kind of gets resolved when you see this intrinsic freedom. When you rest in that freedom, it does the work of the path for us. So I find these two very, very complementary and together very complete and satisfying. I want to talk a little bit about the two views, and then I'll talk about the practice. For me, integrating the practice is easy. I don't think we're going to need to spend a lot of time on that, but I do want to talk about it. Um, Integrating the views has has taken me longer, 10 years. Um, And I've talked a lot about that in the evening talks. I'm not going to go back there. But just to say that the view in the Pali Suttas is developmental. You start from delusion and defilement. You work to build up the wholesome factors to counter the unwholesome qualities of mind. 
and over a long period of time, these wholesome factors get strong enough that the mind starts to gain momentum in a positive direction. But all that positivity is viewed as the result of effort, you know, beginning with, with mindfulness, leading to concentration and insight. So the effort out of the unwholesome states starts to gain momentum and build into the wholesome. So in the suttas and in Vipassana understanding, we don't question notions like effort, path, goal, progress over time, samsara being different from nirvana, enlightened beings being different from worldlings, wholesome states and unwholesome states. So in that way, you could say that the Pali suttas are, are rather dualistic. They do present a dualistic view of spirituality. Then the Mahayana and Vajrayana came along, and they present the view from the other shore. They're uh, mostly talking from the awakened state and telling how it looks from, that, from having reached the other shore. So there's a lot less emphasis on the developmental aspects in the philosophy of it. But one of the things that I greatly appreciate in the Dzogchen teachings and Tibetan Buddhism in general is how they honor both sides of those views. The developmental aspect of progress over time and the perseverance that Rinpoche talked about with the path and as the conventional truth, the evolution of spiritual practice over time through effort. And then the second aspect being the ultimate truth, which is here now, uh, accessible to everyone just in this moment. And the, the image of the deity with both arms crossed, emphasizing the indivisibility of the developmental model and the ultimate model, to me is uh, the height of Dharma understanding. Because what's so beautiful in that is that neither one denies the other. The idea of progress over time does not negate the intrinsic freedom to be found here and now. And the intrinsic freedom to be found here and now does not deny the value of stabilization and practice to realize that fully in each moment. I feel this unity of the conventional and ultimate truths is the, um, is the gold standard by which any spiritual system can be evaluated. The union of Vipassana and Dzogchen has that. Obviously, Vajrayana has that within its own framework also. Um, but it's also a good way to look at other systems that purport to come from a non-dual view. So take a look and see when you hear other non-dual teachings outside the Dzogchen uh, teachings, do they also embrace the conventional? Or do you feel that uh, sometimes the teachings use the ultimate view to knock down, uh, dismiss, negate, belittle, uh, ridicule, humiliate <laughs> the conventional view? And, and effort is a part of that. So if you notice that in non-dual teachings, that there's a belittling of the conventional view, a dismissal of the idea of progress, to me that's an incomplete system. It misses the unity of the conventional and ultimate. So I find that a very good gold standard uh, to use. So I'd like to talk a little more about what I personally uh, feel I found and gained from these teachings. The unity of the conventional and ultimate is kind of the heart of it. But I want to talk about some of the ways that that plays off. 
I think that Dzogchen really illuminates some very key aspects of Vipassana understanding. And it's not that these are necessarily new concepts, but they have not been emphasized in uh, the tradition that most of us have come out of. And so to me, what the Dzogchen teachings have done is to bring these elements front and center and say, these things are key. Take a look at these elements that may already be in your teachings because these things are really important for changing the way you see reality, changing the way you see yourself, changing the way you understand your practice. So I just want to talk about what these, what these are. The first thing that got highlighted, and a few people have mentioned this in personal conversations, is the um, central issue, I think, in Dharma practice, highlighted in the practice of Rigpa, are you clinging or are you not clinging? To me, this is what's uh, uh, revealed time and time and time again in the Rigpa practice. When there's no fixation, which is to say no clinging or no grasping, we are in that natural uh, state of mind. We are in the nature of mind, uh, the pure mind, when fixation comes in, then we lose that. And in a way, the whole path proceeds out of the moments of non-clinging, of non-grasping. So at times in my practice, my only practice is noticing, am I clinging or am I not? Is there fixation taking place or is there not? That makes it really simple. And yet it's also of immediate benefit, because when there's grasping, what else is there? suffering. So it really, you know, it's coming down kind of again and again to the, the, the noble truths. Are you in the second noble truth, suffering through craving? Or are you in the third noble truth, freedom through letting go? Very, very central. The second thing that it, it brought out for me was something about the innate quality of mindfulness. You know, I thought mindfulness was the result of effort. And the teachings illustrate mindfulness as an aspect of clarity, natural clarity, what, what Rinpoche called alertness. This knowing of our experience is something that um, is ever-present when we allow it to happen. In this, it shows its link to the unconditioned, and it uh, provides a lot of reassurance. A lot of reassurance and trust comes from that. Another thing it does is it shows us how to practice when the mind gets calm. This is a dilemma for Vipassana practitioners. We hear this all the time on retreat. Somebody's been uh, going along, having the usual ups and downs of practice, and there's purification going on. There are times of some clarity, but practice is kind of bumpy. And this can go on, honestly, for the first few years of somebody's dedicated uh, practice, doing a number of retreats, continuing their practice in daily life. A lot of bumpy ups and downs, not much stability. And then one day they'll come into an interview and they say, wow, I touched this level of peace I've never known before. The mind was just empty. There were very few thoughts coming in. There was just a lot of spaciousness. I could be there without any effort. Objects were just arising and passing. What do I do now? because it seems so clunky to go back to the breath. 
It seems kind of clunky to, you know, keep noting all the changing things when this vast peace is, is filling you for the first time in your life. So we have a number of instructions that we give at that point. You know, just rest in the peace, focus on the stillness as an object, open to sounds as a way of enhancing the spacious quality, continue meditating with the breath because it will deepen that sense of peace. But here we have an option that I feel really kind of makes the most of the situation. Take a look into the nature of mind and notice that its very essence is stillness or emptiness, and its very nature is awareness, and rest there. So it gives a very clear answer to that. And of all the techniques, I think that the the Dzogchen view for me gives the best words for how to do that. How to do non-doing most skillfully. Because when you know how to do non-doing most skillfully, you can eliminate some of the unnecessary little doings. And it's easier to really stop doing. So I found it really, the instruction so precise, so helpful for really stopping the doing when the mind gets calm. So the non-doing is an important piece. I want to emphasize that Vipassana practice also leads to non-doing, but I just don't feel that our vocabulary is, is as refined as the vocabulary in uh, the Dzogchen tradition. It was never presented to me in as refined a way. I'll say that. I'd like to read this from the Sutta Nipata, part of the Pali, uh, Pali Suttas. This is from the Buddha. This changes the, the emphasis from a lot of the Buddha's teachings. One insight is that effort is the basis of all suffering. The other insight is that by the complete cooling and cessation of effort, no more suffering is produced. Every form of suffering grows out of effort. Eradicate effort and no more suffering is produced. When all effort has been abandoned, there is the freedom of the effortless. It's the Sutta Nipata. It's one volume in the Pali Canon. That's the name of it, the Sutta Nipata. And these are stanzas 743 to 745. So that's there. The effortless teachings are there, right in, you know, at the base of, of our lineage, but they're not always articulated you know, quite that clearly. I have a friend who I mentioned him at the beginning of the retreat who did t- basically two years of intensive practice nonstop in Burma, sleeping one hour a night. Other than that, he was sitting and walking all day except for meals and showers in silence. And at one point in that, obviously, his practice got very, very deep. And at that point, his teacher, Upandita, told him, okay, now what you need to do is stop doing. Stop doing. Up until then, the teacher had been stressing effort, effort, and more effort. He'd come in for an interview, report what was going on. Teacher would say, that's okay, but to try a little harder. Try harder. Come back in the next time, report what was going on. Teacher said, okay, but you know, try a little harder. And finally, he came in, reported, and the teacher said, stop doing, stop making effort. So it's there, but that message has been kind of hidden in our tradition. Something else that's connected with this is the importance of relaxation. Always stressed in the beginning of Dzogchen instructions. 
first relax, then open. I want to read this from a, from a Christian point of view. This is from a Christian contemplative. God is a pure no-thing, concealed in now and here. The less you reach for it, the more it will appear. It has that same quality of relaxation. The less you reach for the ultimate, the more it will appear. Why? Because you are the ultimate. The reaching is a, a movement away from that nature. So the relaxation is a key piece. Once you realize that that's moving uh, toward the ultimate, then uh, it also answers the question where to look for Nibbana. This is also not spelled out so clearly in the teachings. And we just hope that someday, like the rare bird in the forest, it's just going to come and land on us. Nibbana is just going to appear. But the Dzogchen teachings really point out, uh, follow awareness to its source. That's where you're likely to find Nibbana. The point of view that there's another alternative to going through all these different path moments, four different stages of path moments, which can seem very remote, but there's the possibility of stabilizing in this innate freedom. It's another alternative, and being able to live from a place of real freedom when we can stabilize in the view. The um, importance of devotion. In the Vajrayana tradition, the relationship to the guru and the practice of guru yoga is really central to the unfolding of the heart qualities. We learn love, devotion, and surrender through that openness. This, in our tradition, is brought out through the practice of loving-kindness, and particularly loving-kindness with the benefactor. If in your practice of loving-kindness, where you send loving thoughts to different individuals, you pick a benefactor who is very wise, very compassionate, very realized, what happens as you hold that person in your, in your heart for 18 or 20 hours a day, which is what our practice is, you start to have a kind of mind meld with them. And their uh, innate wisdom starts to pervade you, and you realize that that is your nature too. So I discovered that we actually have a devotional avenue, which is the practice of loving-kindness. And that's coming more and more into our retreats. Yes. In the monastic traditions, there is a lot of devotional practice. The lighting of the candles, the incense, the bowing, the chants, and as Jim said, a lot of emphasis on appreciating the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. We've stripped most of that out from the practice here at Spirit Rock, and the Mahasi tradition also has stripped that out. So the monastics have had it, and we have chosen not to import it uh, in most of the retreats at Spirit Rock. Okay, so there are a few other things, but that kind of hits the highlights of the uh, flavors within Vipassana that I have learned to view differently, to hold differently, to appreciate more through the influence of, of this practice. So I'd like to also talk a little bit about how to integrate the two practices 
in formal practice. I really appreciate what Rinpoche said this afternoon, which is that when you go home, feel free to continue with your old practice and just add this practice to it. So you don't have to change anything that you've been doing before, whether you're coming from a Zen background, other Vajrayana practices, or Vipassana. You can add this in as another element. He also said something interesting once. There are not very many Tibetan teachers who have a great deal of respect for the uh, Theravadan Vipassana practices. I don't know if this is news to you all. I'm sorry if it is, but it happens to be true. And Rinpoche is one of the few who who do um, have respect for what we do, which I think is why he spent a lot of time with us and why he comes here. And one of the things that he said, I think it was in an interview in Taramandala, he actually said that he thought Vipassana was the best preliminary practice for Dzogchen compared to Nundro. He felt Vipassana was a better preliminary practice uh, than the Nundro. And after I'd read that interview, I asked him why. And he said, um, because Vipassana practitioners know really well how to meditate. So it's really easy for them to learn how not to meditate. (laughs) (laughs) So again, uh, he really does appreciate what we do. The two practices are very complementary. Um, and I have, I have combined them. I have been combining them over the last uh, 10 years. <laughs> found it very helpful. But I want to say a little bit first about from talking to people on this retreat about their Dzogchen practice, I have one kind of main comment uh, from the conversations I've had. And that main comment is kind of main advice, not to everybody, but in some of the conversations, maybe 50%, I don't know. Trust your experience when you look. When you look. When you do the technique of looking to see mind essence, trust in what you get. Because a lot of the conversations have been about, I don't think anything's happening for me. I don't think this is really it. Nothing's happening when I look, I've been doing it for all these days and uh, I'm not getting it. And every time I talk with the person, they actually were getting it. But they hadn't realized they were getting it. Because I think we're expecting something uh, special. Some special experience, some fireworks, you know, maybe neon lights or uh, the Buddha dropping by to announce this is it. <laughs> and it isn't like that. You know, it's not meant to be like that. That's not a, a necessary sign of it happening. And really, um, most of the time, it is really ordinary. You know, I mentioned that sometimes when people really start looking and getting it, big releases happen. That does happen for some people. I was giving a talk, I don't think I mentioned this before, but maybe I did. I was giving a talk at um, IMS, our sister center. It was a Vipassana retreat. And I just dropped in toward the end of the talk on mindfulness, the words rest in awareness. Did I tell this before? Okay, I just dropped in the words rest in awareness as an alternative. One of the meditators started to go into convulsions because she, for the first time, dropped her effort. And when she dropped her effort, her body relaxed so much that there was just a huge energy release. 
just from hearing the words rest in awareness. Uh, this didn't happen, fortunately, to the rest of the retreat. <laughs> but it's an exceptional case. But things like that can happen. But that's like one-tenth of one percent of the time. 99.9% of the time, when we look, the experience is very ordinary. The difference between it and regular experience or regular meditation is mostly one of perception. It's not that the content changes so much, but we see it differently. And there's just a subtle shift in perception. So I think the most reliable guide is the one that Rinpoche mentioned. There's a greater sense of openness. There's just some little kind of opening up, or sometimes it could be more of more space. Something else that happens, sometimes things just get a little more vivid. You know, they light up a little more. Someone mentioned that in looking there was a sense of stopping. And that's actually part of what's intended because in the practice we've received is actually only half of the Dzogchen meditation practices. It's the beginning half called Trekcho, which means cutting through. And uh, there's another half uh, called crossing over that we're not going to learn about this retreat. I've never learned about. Uh, that Rinpoche does not teach us, so forget about it. <laughs> uh, advanced practice. So the style of Dzogchen that we're doing is only half of the Dzogchen practice called Trekcho. Togao is the Tibetan word for crossing over. We're doing a practice called Trekcho, which means cutting through. And essentially what is being cut through is ego-clinging, conceptual thought, however you want to formulate it. So this sense of stopping is a piece of it. And take a look and see you know, if when you uh, do the looking, there isn't an element of stopping of other fixations. That, that's part of the intention. But it may not be so dramatic. It may be subtle. You, know, you sort of realize, oh, actually informing the intention to look, I had unhooked from the train of thought. So something had already stopped a little. But just see if there isn't some little bit of stopping connected with looking and seeing. So that's the subtlest thing to, to come to, is this sense of openness that's the revealer of emptiness. It's subtle, but just if you can get that little sense, oh, things open up, I can see the space that everything's held in. That's the emptiness aspect. That's the harder of the two to connect with. Then the other half of it is the knowing. The knowing just means um, appearances are still happening. This is not uh, subtle. It just means, oh, I'm still seeing, I'm hearing, I'm feeling body sensations, thoughts are going through, I have some emotion. That's all the knowing means. It's not looking for a state of awareness that's apart from phenomena. You're not trying to divorce yourself from your ordinary experience and find some more refined transcendent state. It's just meeting phenomena clearly, knowing them clearly. It's so ordinary that it's easy to overlook. But anyway, if you just get that little sense of openness and then you realize you're still experiencing phenomena, then the knowing is there. That's all. That's all. Whatever form and flavor that takes for you, you know, who knows if this is definitely Rigpa or, or not definitely Rigpa or not. Um, that's not actually the key at this point. The key at this point is just to trust and believe that what you've got is the closest you can get to the ground. And that, so that becomes your basis. 
That becomes the basis for your practice. And then you just trust that if you keep doing that, more and more of the ground will be revealed. That's really the heart of it. And it's so ordinary that we, you know, we may tend to overlook it. But as you do it again and again, you start to pick out what I'd call the common denominator of the experience. You start to see that there's a flavor that comes in over and over. You know, regardless of what your phenomenal world experience is, regardless of what emotions are there, or what you're looking at, or what sounds are there, or whether you're moving fast or whether you're moving slow, there's this kind of common thread of openness and awareness that you just start to become more familiar with. And then you start to gain more conviction. Oh yeah, this is, this is what they're talking about. And all you have to do then is rest in that as long as it stays. So um, it's a little bit like uh, you're walking down the street and you smell a bakery. And you're not at the bakery yet, but you picked up the scent of it. So you just keep following the scent and you know that if you just follow the scent, it leads you right to the bakery. And that's enough. So just keep following the scent, you know, over and over and over. The, so the main obstacle that I've seen from the people I've talked to is doubt. Just lack of certainty if this is it. And so the antidote is trust. Just trust that what you get when you look is your path and follow, follow it. Okay, so in integrating the two, I'll talk about how I work in retreat with my practice, how I work in daily life. In retreat practice, I still spend the first period of time on a shamatha practice with support. Um, uh, what I'm doing these days is either loving-kindness practice, uh, the practice of metta, or meditation on the breath, one or the other. I just finished a month-long retreat in April, a period of silent practice, and I actually spent the first two weeks doing shamatha with support. And then in the last two weeks, I opened up uh, more to uh, choiceless awareness and the Dzogchen practice. And one of the things that was very apparent when I put in that foundation of shamatha is that by the time I opened up to the Dzogchen, the mind was very stable, and the response from looking was very strong. So as the shamatha collects the mind energy, the response from looking and seeing becomes even more vivid because the mind has become more powerful in that. But it's not necessary. You know, Rinpoche said that a number of times. You don't have to have that base of shamatha. You can just start from looking and seeing. So this is not what everybody has to do. It's just what I like to do. Another question that came up in talking with people was the difference between, what's the difference between shamatha without support and rigpa? So I just wanted to touch on that briefly. The key thing is that in shamatha without support, we're really focusing, connecting and sustaining with the objects that are arising. That's the point. We're really looking at the object part of the experience in each new moment. In the Rigpa practice, there's a knowing of appearances, but there's also an attention to the knowing, so that there's an understanding that the knowing is taking place and the knowing is empty. So we don't fasten uh, on objects out of any, any intention, no particular in intention. 
although we will connect. The attention will move to different objects. But what we're mainly tuning into is the emptiness aspect and the knowing aspect. In daily life, then, you can follow some combination of these two in a similar way. I often follow a similar process. If I don't have a lot of mental stability, I'll do some focus practice first, and then I'll open up, let's say, to the Dzogchen practice. So I might do my breath for the first 30 minutes of a sitting and open up um, to Dzogchen practice for the last 30. If I feel I have a bit of mental stability when I sit down, I might go straight away into the Dzogchen practice. And if I really have no mental stability at all, I might just stay with awareness of the breath for the whole time, or whatever shamatha without support you choose. But again, if you particularly feel drawn to go straight to the Dzogchen practice, that's okay too, whether you have mental stability or not. It's okay anytime. It will build its own stability of mind. So there's kind of, as you move into the more open kinds of attention, there's kind of a continuum. Shamatha without support, or what we'd call choiceless awareness. And I want to mention one other practice I've worked with that I like a lot. It is uh, shamatha, either with support or without support, but instead of uh, focusing on the object, you focus on the consciousness of the object. So when we talked last night about the hearing of the sound, and we mentioned that there are two aspects to it. There's the sound, which is physical. There's the consciousness of it, which is mental. What if in your meditation practice you started to tune into the consciousness side of that unified experience? That becomes very interesting. There is knowing taking place. Can you intuit the knowing as you hear this sound? You know it's not happening to a corpse, right? You're knowing it. The sound is easy to pick up. Can you intuit the knowing that's going on? Annabelle? When, um, I, when I first started with knee pads many, many years ago, I was drawing a lot, like maybe four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I was drawing a space around the object, mm-hmm. instead of the object. Mm-hmm. And I really got a lot of the, the I got the feeling of non-duality from doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. That can be another way to surround an odd, not focus on an object, but focus on the space. Oh, her comment was that uh, when she, how old were you? 18. 18. She was doing a lot of drawing. And instead of drawing objects, she started drawing the space around the objects. And that that reminded her of the uh, instruction about not focusing on the object, but looking on what holds it, which is the knowing or the consciousness. Sorry. So how would that practice be different than the Rigpa practice? It's different from the Rigpa practice in that you're actually moving to and focusing on an aspect of your experience. Mm-hmm. So you're making that the focus for the meditation, and you're just looking at the knowing in relation to one thing. Uh, but you're, you know, you're definitely making the intention to connect and sustain with that one thing. But it sort of moves in the direction. 
You could do it with shamatha with support, so you can do it on the breath for a whole hour. You can do it shamatha without support. Um, and it does then, it, the, the emptiness doesn't come in right away, but the more you do it, the more you see that everything's an appearance in consciousness, and so the emptiness of the phenomena really starts to show through, and it becomes a very light practice. You can do it all day, in walking, in sitting, in work meditation, in eating, anything you're experiencing, you look on the knowing side in relation to that particular phenomenon. So you're focusing, there's a shamatha with support thing there, but you're looking from the knowing side, and the emptiness starts to pervade more and more, and it brings about uh, a lot of lightness in the practice. And then finally, there's the last step of um, having the attention be on uh, the empty nature of, of mind, the empty knowing. And if the focusing on the consciousness of objects is a lightness, this is kind of a champagne practice. You know, it's light and bubbly, so it's, it's delightful. The last thing I wanted to say is that, you know, I really, as Rinpoche did, I encourage everyone uh, to give plenty of opportunity for the formal practice to work its magic. You know, it means putting ourselves in the situation, whether it's an hour a day or one retreat a year or a number of retreats a year, to really allow the path the time to do its work of transformation. Um, I think we're well set up in the Vipassana community for those kinds of retreats. We have a two-month retreat here every February that had uh, over 80 people, either for one month or two months. Uh, this year, the three-month course at IMS in the fall, we have a lot of opportunities for long practice. One of the, you know, kind of structural problems maybe with uh, Vajrayana practice right now is that there aren't so many opportunities for those intermediate length of retreats. You know, a lot of seven-day retreats go on in the Tibetan community, and then there are the people who go and do three-year retreats. <laughs> and kind of in between those, <laughs> I don't know what you do. Maybe there are things to do. Um, yeah, I actually think uh, Rocky Mountain Shambhala Center is probably one of the places that offers extended retreats. But if those things start to fill in in the Tibetan community, you know, that, that would be very good. So those opportunities are coming along, and um, you know, hopefully there will be more and more as, as time goes by. So I just wanted to close uh, with a quotation from Patro Rinpoche that uh, kind of sums up this intersection point that I think is good for Vipassana practitioners, is good for Dzogchen practitioners. These are the pith instructions from Patro Rinpoche. Don't dwell on the past. Don't invite the future. Don't alter the innate wakefulness. Don't fear phenomena. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. Okay. Once more. Don't dwell on the past. 
don't invite the future. Don't alter the innate wakefulness. Don't fear phenomena. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. Okay. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 14, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.